0: Thank you for tuning into Sojcast. We hope you enjoy this uninterrupted listening experience. But before that, please do listen to these messages that come from those that support your favorite show.
1: Are you always procrastinating? Are you looking for a real connection? Do you find it harder to keep going? Do you feel like no one's
0: there to really listen? Are you drowning in work? Are you always stressing about what to eat? Do you get too worried about your and your family's health? Do you find yourself grappling with peer pressure? Do you feel like you're being
1: watched or judged all the time? Ask the experts only on Women
0: Influencers Talk Show. Greetings, viewers. Um, welcome to Immigration Talk program on Indus TV. My name is uh, Venkat Maram. I am president and CEO of Dextro Software Systems, located here in Princeton Junction, New Jersey. For the past 25 years, Dextro has been helping our employees to achieve the best in their careers. So, here for today's conversation, we have uh, attorney Poonam Bushar from Bushar Law Firm. Like this SochCast? Tune in for more with the SochCast app from the Google Play Store.
1: Hi, Venkatji. Hi, everyone. How are you? Thank you for having me on. Um, my name's Poonam Bukar. I have been an immigration attorney for over 20 years. Um, I practice mainly corporate immigration law in the Princeton area, and I'm also of counsel to Schaeferman Lakin, um, a firm in Lawrenceville that has 45 attorneys that covers areas such as real estate, corporate law, mergers acquisitions, patent law, any of your needs that um, where you may need anyone, other attorney than an immigration attorney.
0: That's very good, Poonam, and I know we, I, we saw that uh, firm address near it's a big law firm. I'm yes. glad I'm glad you are associated with a much bigger law firm.
1: I like the fact that it's by the mall.
0: But, okay. <laughs> Jumping into the topic, so we today maybe we want to discuss this year's H1 scenario, what's happening in the situation, where we are. So do you have some updates you want to share with us to where are we in the lottery process? where do we stand in the current situation?
1: Sure, well the USCIS hasn't officially come out with numbers as to what the lottery um, applications were but as we know last year it was around 275,000 and we're hearing through the grapevine that it's definitely over 300,000 this year And I think a lot of the reason for that is, as you know, Venkatji, there was talk about changing how the H-1B system works and the prevailing wages. and I think people were rushing to file before there was an increase in wages and highest wage getting the H-1B's first so I think there would probably be more applications than last year and as you know in the regular cap um, for regular H-1B's it's about sixty, it's 65,000 and the Masters cap is 20,000 so the first lottery has happened and in you know It's estimated that people are getting about 20% of their cases picked up, which seems to indicate that the number of applications were definitely higher than last year.
0: That indicates there are a lot of qualified potential candidates in the market that need H1, and also it shows the economy is doing good. That's why there are so many jobs so many companies are willing willing to file for it. So in in the process, so did did they complete the entire lottery? Is the lottery done for now? or any future options?
1: So as of now, we're not really going to know if it's completely done. Um, last year, there was a second lottery that took place in July or end of July, beginning of August. We'll only know um, after we see how many case, after USCIS determines how many cases were filed at the end of June. June 30th is the um, application deadline for the cases that were picked up. Those cases that weren't filed will get thrown into another lottery for the people that are waitlisted right now. So I would anticipate Given the fact that cause of, because of COVID, some of the projects may fall through or clients may not have enough funds to bring on a H-1B worker, that I would anticipate that there will be a second lottery.
0: So what we are saying is by June 30th, everybody has to file their cases that got picked up in the lottery this year. Right. And And any leftover cases, they might go back into a second lottery and give the people that are not selected yet might get picked up. That's right. That's what I see.
1: We are advising our clients to file as soon as possible. Okay. Reason being, um, especially people who are in F1 OPTs who need decisions by September 30th, we're saying file them as soon as possible. The other thing is um, just in reg... We've been seeing USCIS, the mailing room, sending back a lot of cases unnecessarily mm-hmm. um, where... You know, you want to give the opportunity that just in case the case gets sent back because you put the wrong check on it or because the mail room made a mistake at USCIS, that you have an opportunity to refile it because any application received after June 30th will not be admitted into the pool.
0: Okay, that's good. So, above the people part, I have the people started getting some receipts uh, uh, as the USCIS sending the receipts of the Cases that they received for by the so ones far? that
1: have been filed, yes. Premium processing is still being accepted for CAP cases. So, anybody that's filed cap, um, a CAP case in premium processing will have gotten a receipt.
0: Right, so, while, while we are on the premium topic, so is there any difference between last year and this year for the premium? I mean, is the duration any difference? Is there any fee difference in the premium this year compared to last year?
1: Well, the fee went up last year, so premium processing went up to $2,500, mm-hmm. and it now takes 15 business days, whereas before it was two, two weeks. weeks. Okay. So it's 15 business days, which could potentially could be three, three weeks, weeks now. Um, but we are seeing premium processing move fairly quickly.
0: Are you seeing any pattern out of this premium processing? Uh, are there more RFEs versus more approvals? Um, is there any partiality from the government or any preference?
1: I can honestly say that Um, In the last few months, it's been pretty even. Between premium, we've gotten cases straight approved with H-1Bs, and some get RFEs. And I think a lot of the times the RFEs are because maybe the client couldn't give us all the documentation on time. Um, So then there'll be an RFE, or a lot of the times RFEs may be on the usual specialty occupation.
0: Okay. So the premium itself is not determining. It's based on the merit of the case, whether you get an RFE or you get an approval. Yeah,
1: I think the truth is, um, given the new administration, given the cases that have been won against USCIS, I think we are definitely seeing, seeing a change in the way cases are being adjudicated.
0: So compared to last year, we are seeing that it's a more common sense approach, more or less combative with the employers and employees and, and, and serve the community than definitely. picking up the uh, unnecessary fights with the right. people. Good, good, good to hear that. Thank you for that. <laughs> Of these uh, H-1 cases, invariably the topic comes up about people filing multiple petitions. You just mentioned that about roughly 20% of the cases got approved. Um, I'm sure a portion of that is lucky ones are lucky. The guy who gets picked up, or gal who gets picked up, they picked up multiple times, um, and they picked up only one. So what is the procedure, a proper thing to follow for the employer when you have a potential candidate, Is you know you have your employee, but what if they are not filing from other place? How employers can protect or what are the ramifications of such, um, you know? So,
1: first of all, if the employee got picked up twice mm. by different companies, I would tell them to play the lottery because the chances of that happening, they're very lucky. But from in all honesty, from an employer's perspective, it's very concerning because they're going to spend the money And if they don't know that the employee has already filed with another employer, then that money will obviously go to waste. The employer may have um, promised a client that this resource will show up, and then if the employee doesn't join them, then obviously the project may fall through or they may find it hard to find another resource to come on board. So one of the things that we do from the outset for our clients is um, before filing the H-1B CAP case, we ask our employees to take a signed affidavit. It doesn't have to be notarized, but just a signed note from the employee stating that if they do file the H-1B in the registration itself that the employee intends to join them. Because as you know, USCIS has made clear that they want to see bona fide applications being made. Bona fide applications means with regards to that the candidate is qualified and also that the employer at that particular point in time intends to hire them. So if the employer doesn't know that the employee has filed three other applications with different employees, then from their perspective, they're making a bona fide application. But then you go to the next stage, like you said, that the employee gets picked up luckily by both um, employers and he he or she decides to file both applications. How can an employer protect themselves? So the first part I would say is when we file the H-1B applications, typically we'll put an offer letter or an employment agreement in. And I think this is the time that it becomes very critical for employers to make sure that their employment agreements are solid. So one of the things that we say is, with the help of an employment attorney, is one of the things you say is that upon signing this employment agreement, I intend to take this employment so long as the H-1B visa gets approved. Now, according to DOL, you can't Um, penalize somebody for not joining you, but if there are legitimate liquidated damages because you lost a project and the employee didn't come through, um, it's something that you may or may not be able to pursue. But I think it becomes imperative on the employer to make sure that the employment agreements are solid at this point.
0: Okay. So as long as the employer does the good faith work, uh, what that, connects all the dots, do, do, does their due diligence, they're they're okay, safely covered, even whatever happens after the because of the employee. That's
1: Absolutely. As long plus. as you can document it, right. and if you are ever questioned by USCIS, as long as you have the documentation and you're not showing that you're making a deliberate pattern of doing this or filing duplicates, then um, you should be fine.
0: For uh, I mean, employees, you know, when last year when they put this lottery, one of the things they wanted to avoid is, you know, several multiple petitions coming. That's one of the reasons they said, okay, you know, we'll, we'll go with the lottery. And that last year, in the first year, they did not do much. Are there any plans? Do you hear anything from your profession uh, that, you know, even the candidates that will try to do these multiple filings, you um, Are we seeing any negative ramifications down the line coming from anywhere?
1: Venkatji, our office personally hasn't seen the negative filing, but at the same time, given the, the small amount of visas that are available, you would want people to not just file multiple applications in the hopes that they get one. And I think it's just a matter of time before we start getting... Um, If this happens frequently, I think it's just a matter of time before USCIS picks it up in the database and questions that this employee has X, Y, Z with this employer and then with employer B they have an application and I'm sure at some point it will catch up with them.
0: So um, all the data is in the databases. If they really want to catch up at some point, point. and can I do think that. when we're, they get
1: more sophisticated, we've got to remember we're only in the second, we're only in the second phase of the new registration system. Right. So, what the implications are going to be, we're going to have to wait
0: and see. Wait. And, and also to all our uh, friends and employees, candidates that are out there, that have multiple cases. Um, as you can see, there are 300,000 applications, and um, if you take it at least 250,000 of them, we can assume that they are unique candidates. And there are only 65,000, not even 65 plus 20, 6,000 we have to take away for Chile and uh, set aside for that's Chile aside. and Singapore. So aside from
1: the. This 60, number? Yeah. So
0: 85,000 available yes. for the candidates. Yes. So most of them are our brothers and our sisters. Um, as long as you file one, let the other one go back to the lottery so that one more person gets benefited. We all get better when more of our friends, more of our families, more of our people like us that come as immigrants, you know, get an opportunity to get H1s and get status and do that. So my appeal from this program and Punamji Giants is if you have multiple cases, you got selected, as you said, you are a lucky one. Go and use that lucky to buy a lottery ticket. Maybe <laughs> you'll become a multimillionaire. But let that second slot go back into the slot. Do not use it that way, one more person gets benefit from it.
1: Yeah, even if, I agree, even if you did it at the first stage, at the second stage, just have one employer file.
0: Poonamji, when we are on this case discussing the case of filing, so what anything different this year in in the uh, regimen process, do we have to worry about any difference in type of RFEs we need to get or what type of documentation? uh, What do you see would happen? So
1: I think, you know, um, prior to the big IT surf case, we were getting a lot of um, RFEs asking for itineraries, employment, employee relationship. All that was struck down after May two thousand twenty. That um, you don't need to provide an itinerary stating every single detail of the employment. And even with regards to client letters, you didn't necessarily have to provide how long the duration of the work was, um, but that there was enough employment. So I think those, the itinerary requirement, employer employee relationship was gonna see less of, but I think what we are gonna see more of is a specialty occupation like we're seeing now and the SOC code. So I think when it comes to filing, the H-1Bs, it's really important that the candidates are put into the correct SOC code because that's where the prevailing wage gets affected and whether they've qualified enough for that particular position. The um, other thing is we don't use client letters as much as we used to. Sometimes we tend to use them to enhance the special occupation, especially if somebody doesn't have a straight four-year bachelor degree, we may use it to show that the job duties are complex and therefore um, the particular job or project requires somebody that would normally have a bachelor's degree. I think the other thing that we're seeing a lot of that um, I urge everyone to be careful of is the issue with the education evaluations. Mm -hmm. Um, So where somebody has a straight four-year engineering, computer science, um, IT degree, it's a pretty straightforward situation. But gone are the years where many years ago we used to file. I remember having a guy that had a farming degree but had IT experience and we managed to get his H-1B approved. Long gone are those days, USCIS is getting stricter about the education evaluations and even the evaluations that are coming from the agencies, we need to read and look at. So, for instance, I was presented the other day with an evaluation that one of my clients had had done by an agency that we don't normally use and the person had a chemistry degree.
0: Like this Sochcast? Tune in for more with the Sochcast app from the Google Play Store.
1: And they only had four years of IT experience, but they changed that, the evaluation company changed that chemistry degree to be the equivalent of a management information systems. And I know that everybody's familiar with the three years of work experience equivalent to one year of bachelors. But if you look at the regulations, the regulations actually state that it has to be progressive work experience in that IT field. It can't just be any kind of work experience. And I think that we're seeing USCIS look at the education evaluations a lot more closely which I think it becomes imperative on us as attorneys or companies that are filing to read those evaluations and make sure that they fall within the parameters of the law.
0: We know last couple of years, at least uh, during the uh, last two years of the previous administration, um, we were pretty much everything other than computer science and electrical engineering were rejected. So does it mean this time USCIS is taking a step back and allowing... Um, similar science degrees uh, or are are they going all the way to non-science degrees as a basis plus experience to make it happen?
1: So Venkatji, I'm a firm believer of in truth, our office didn't see a lot of those rejections. And I'm not just saying it, it's the truth. Our office didn't. And I think it really does boil down to the documentation, okay. how you present the case and how it's documented. And obviously, there are more challenges if somebody has a commerce degree and then only three, four years of IT experience. A lot of it will fall down to the ed- education evaluation, the job duties, the SOC code. It's going to be the entire package together that's going to matter.
0: Okay. So that's good. So uh, if you have a good attorney that can put a nice spin on the case, proper spin, I mean. No, within the parameters of the
1: things. law, absolutely.
0: Purnam, I want to go back to this weird question again to check on this, This multiple selections. When a company applies multiple selections, if the candidate gets multiple selections and he decides not to come to company B, is there any way for the company B to use that selection for some other candidates? Is it allowed to, under the new H1B regulations or it's just gone waste?
1: It's actually gone to waste because the registration system requires you to name the beneficiary with you know, passport and it's for that particular beneficiary. So yes, it's essentially gone to waste.
0: When you say particular beneficiary, does it mean that ca- can the candidate take that selection, go to some other employer, and have them file for him?
1: No, because in the same way, the H one B petition is based is the organization petitioning for that candidate. So the organization owns that.
0: So it's a organization and the candidate combination is the one that is yes standard you for can't it. And you can take it
1: anywhere. Take else. it anyway,
0: kind of situation. We I mean, know a whole. There are a lot of. I want to jump quickly into this visa stamping and what's happening current news. And during the last year, because of the pandemic, a lot of people did not travel, and there's a lot. There were not many visa slots available. Uh, hoping that you know maybe people will start traveling and and getting stamped out. What are you hearing? The people should to take precautions, and what is the stamping process right now? Where is it easy where is it a heart any of the information you have it would be good
1: Yeah I mean based on what we're seeing is that the drop box is moving fairly reasonable compared to the way it was last year we are getting people um, getting their visas via the drop box so the drop box has specific requirements you have to have had Um, you're asking for the same classification, your visa was um, obtained. It used to be in the last 12 months. But because of COVID, um, the Department of State has changed it to if your visa has expired within the last 48 months, you can still use the dropbox, which is a huge relief for people. Mm -hmm. Because now people who got stuck in India and who couldn't come or who couldn't, who weren't eligible under the proclamation to extend their visas through the Dropbox, even if they've expired beyond the 12 years, can still use the Dropbox provided they fulfill certain requirements. And we are definitely seeing in our office that the Dropbox is moving, I wouldn't say within one or two days, but two to three weeks, it, it, we are seeing movement of people getting their visas. I think. Be- Now with this 48 months eligibility, it's gonna mean a lot more people can go through the Dropbox, box, less people will need um, visas with the officers and things hopefully should move relatively quickly.
0: Okay, so what you're saying is as long as a um, candidate got stamped on the same visa category, so H1 candidate stamped going back to the H1 again, they can throw in the drop box.
1: And as long as their original, their stamp was from their same home country.
0: So if it was in India, it has to be India, if it yes. is elsewhere. Then they can they can drop in the drop box, it is taking two to three weeks for them to get an answer on the Drawback.
1: Yeah, I mean, provided you don't get a 221G, and you know, then yes.
0: In that situation, suppose the candidate went back to India, got stuck up in the last 48 months, um, you know, eventually that job disappeared. Now they found some other employer, some other job, and they filed a transfer. Can they still use the Dropbox? They're still in the H1 category, but a new employer, new filing. Can yeah, they? They can, they can, they can still, still use the drawback. job. Yeah. However, if the candidates who are on a OPT and F1 visa, and they are, they are going for a first-time H1 stamping, they need to attend in person.
1: That's right. And those are the interviews that are taking so
0: long. What, is, what type of duration, how much delay nowadays? Whatever. I'm
1: hearing now that some people can't get interviews till August.
0: Okay. Um, Depending on the slot. And you
1: know, we have to remember, right, that the cons- consulates and embassy are not operating at full capacity. So we're hope and we know what the situation in India is right now. So I don't know uh, how that's going to impact the interviews. But if the consulate goes back to operating at minimal capacity, then those people who are looking for new visas are going to have to have their appointments take a lot longer.
0: I know we are hearing, as we speak, that some including Maharashtra and other places there is a shutdown, lockdown in place in India right now. So in those situations, all the interviews that were scheduled for those days will be canceled or do they still entertain the We haven't heard
1: of it yet, that the councils right now are operating at minimal level, but given the situation with COVID in India, it would not surprise me if the councils um, shut down for a while and again, stop processing visas. Um, but we'll have to see what happens.
0: I wanted to touch up another topic and see: Are there any, um, with all this chaos with the stamping and consulates and passports, with the with the whole throughout the last year? I'm, I'm sure some other people have some limitations on when they when they can get the passport kind of situations. Are there any situations you are seeing in terms of I-94 dates or HR? Any, any hint, you can give it to the HR folks?
1: Yes, vankachi we're actually seeing a lot of this. Um, so a lot of people, as you said, be, are going to India, aren't able to renew their passports, but they have the visa stamped into their passport. Um, So let's assume their H-1B is valid till January 2023, but their passport is only valid until June 2021. What's happening is when they come into the country in the United States, the officers, rightly so per the law, are cutting the I-94 card short to, say, June 2021. But the candidates are thinking that they're still valid till June 2023. And a lot of people are not checking the I-94 cards online, which will show that the date has been shortened, which means sometimes they're not aware of it. And you can and if HR isn't aware of it, there's other implications, right? It means the I-9s aren't being updated, which is a whole separate topic and has a whole different implication. But it also means that you may not file the candidate its H-1B extension in time, if they don't know that the I-94 has card has been cut short. So I think it's really important from what we're seeing that HR stays in touch with the candidates when they're traveling, checks that the I-94 date, whether it's still the same or it's being cut short, and act accordingly.
0: Suppose H-1 is valid until 2022, and they got a I-94 only June until June 2021 because their passport is shorter duration. Obviously when they come here, they have an option to get their passport renewed out going back to the consulate. In those situations, how do they get the new extension time on the H-1? We know their 797 is good for another year but they, what is the procedure for them to get so their I-94 extended? Ways.
1: Sometimes if the person, if the candidate gets the passport renewed, we've had them go to CBP, um, Custom Border Patrol and just ask the officer there or call and sometimes the officers will let them make appointments and fix the I-94 card in some jurisdictions and especially because of COVID, they're not doing that and we'll just have to file an, uh, a H-1B extension and if for some reason nobody noticed it and there's the gap, then we'll have to file a H-1B st- extension, non-Protunk, which is basically asking USCIS for their discretionary authority to approve it as though the person was in the country in
0: status. Okay, so does it mean technically H-1 date is the short test of either I-94 date or 797 date?
1: So based 54. on the last action rule, no. if some, the I-94 card is the date that prevails, Okay. So, if they traveled and entered the country into the United States and the date is shorter than on the H1B approval, that is the. Um
0: like this, Sochcast? Tune in for more with the Sochcast app from the Google Play Store. Last day. Last date for the H1B. Yes. Okay. You can't go by the date on no. I 797. <laughs> Very, very good, important point. As we said, too many ramic creations of that Absolute. in in I nine, especially I nine compliance, and all bigger headache with that. Thing That's nowadays. right. But I think there are some questions um, from the audience.
1: Sure. I have a quick question on few H one lottery selected candidates who are presently in United States. And they could be on H four visa or they have applied for H one, being on L one visa. And their application has been filed by the employer. But because of some or other reason, uh, maybe their H1, uh, their L1 has been expired. They cannot stay in the, con- in the United States. Or uh, for H4 candidate, there is some family emergency, some urgency that they have to leave United States and go out of the country. What happens to those applications if the H1 application is pending? It is not approved and the candidate steps out of the country. What happens to those applications? So normally in that situation, If you file for a change of status from H4 to H1, L2 to H1, or F to H1, when you file a change of status, if you travel outside of the country, um, the change of status portion of it is denied. But that doesn't mean the application is denied. They may still approve the H1B, but it would probably be through consulate processing, which means that you'll probably have to travel outside of the country and then get stamped and come back in.
0: Okay, so because the I-94 when we filed is different, for the I-94 they came back, that, that creates a problem for them.
1: It does, and you can't, it's it's deemed as you cannot, when you do the change of status, you're supposed to be in the country.
0: Um, do they need to file another petition to, for that to happen, or can they take that and go back to They the can country? take
1: it, go back to their home country. If Canada were open, that would be a different story, but they can go back to their home country and come back with the visa stamping and come in. It's an extra step that they're going to have to do. They're going to have to get stamped, and it will get approved as though it's council at processing.
0: Here is another question from the viewers. We have been getting questions from candidates whose H1 application has been selected in the lottery and the employer is not filing their H1 anymore. One of the reasons is the company doesn't have the project or financial resources to do it. Uh, The second reason is the employee and employer uh, are not in good relationship. So in such cases, as a different employer, can our company
1: file for their H1 based on that selection? So, the employer in this situation um, owns the H-1B petition. The registration is done under the employer's name. Even if they get picked up, and whether it's for a financial reason or because there's some kind of contentious relationship between the employer and employee, that um, particular organization owns the H-1B petition. The candidate can't take that selection process and have another company apply for them. It's the same concept as without the H-1B, you can't force an employer to file something or to employ you on their behalf. So um, unfortunately, the candidate will be out of luck unless, as Venkatji says, if it's a financial reason and that company gets bought out and can take over this application.
0: That's all we have, Poonam Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And uh, This program has been uh, created by Indus TV as part of its Immigration Talk. And my name is Venkat Maram, um, President and CEO of Dextro Software Systems in Princeton Junction, New Jersey. And uh, Ms. Poonam Bushar is a attorney with the Bushar Law Firm uh, here in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this searchcast. What is your Soch?